I've been shown a few different kind of um, Bible teachers at the beginning uh, who, who speak of uh, the Psalms or laments, and I'd like you to hear uh, a couple brief clips from uh, John Piper uh, as he speaks of the preciousness of the Psalms in our lives. So listen to him, how to read the Psalms. If you read the Psalms just for doctrine, you're not reading them the way they were meant to be read. They are songs. They are poetry. They are musical. You see musical terms strewn throughout the Psalms. They're meant to move us, not just inform us. They're meant to alter our emotions, help our emotions, guide our emotions, shape our emotions. One of the reasons that Christians love the Psalms, I've heard my wife say it's her favorite book in the Bible. One of the reasons people say that is because the Psalms touch on so many emotions. You can always find yourself in the Psalms. I don't care what you're dealing with. And then one more brief clip um, as he talks about how to apply the Psalms in our life. The Psalms more intentionally than any book in the Bible is designed to carry, express, and shape our emotions. Give vent to them, all of them and shape them, and rein them in, and free them up, and explode them, and kill them where they should be killed. It is an amazing gift to the church. So, observation number two is the Psalms are songs and poems, and Psalms and poems and songs exist because something more should happen to us than doctrinal refinement. Now that's saying something from John Piper. Uh, um, and uh, I, I really appreciate him uh, unpacking the fact that the, the Psalms are loaded with emotions and they are designed by God, by the Holy Spirit, uh, for that very purpose. And... Um, and so he said, if, if you read the Psalms just for doctrine, you're not reading them the right way. They are, they are songs, poetry, musical, meant to move us, not just inform us. They're meant to alter our emotions, guide our emotions, shape our emotions. The Psalms are an amazing gift to the church. And then this is the, his last line there. They are songs and poems that exist because something should happen to us. Uh, something more should happen to us than doctrinal refinement. And th this is good. This is very good for me to hear, uh, me to reflect on. And, um, and so I hope that uh, it's been an encouragement to look at some of the Psalms of Lament. Um, today we're going to look at Psalm 10. Again, we're seeing this pattern. Confidence or complaints lead to confidence. Uh, we're going to talk about the wicked today. If you've ever asked that question, why in the world is all this happening? It, will, will, this ever, will this ever change? It seems like more and more wickedness and evil just ramp up. And then the injustices and abuse that people encounter. When will this ever end? 
Psalm 10 is a great place for us to center ourselves and to rein in our emotions and maybe vent them, but, but find confidence in God. Uh, Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The book of Psalms was the songbook of God's people Israel, written in Hebrew poetry, which most powerfully can express our personal experiences, our emotions. Um, One Old Testament scholar says that most all the Old Testament prayers are laments. They are laments, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Someone has called the Psalms the medicine chest of the soul. And, um, and so here's kind of the pattern that a lament takes. And it can take, these can kind of be jumbled around, but there's an introductory appeal, a cry to God, the Lord, and then, and then this rant, okay, this lament of, of complaints to God. And you'll see it heavily in this uh, individual lament of David. Uh, a confession of trust. They get to a place where they recognize who God is. It could be an attribute of God. Um, and and there, there's a pause. And, and they place their confidence in God. And, and, and then somewhere, sometimes the petition comes before, but it's always after the lament. And there's this petition of strong imperatives. We'll see it in this one. Arise, O Lord! And, and it's almost like, oh, you can say that to God, huh? Okay. And so it's a petition to God. And then this shout of praise or a vow of praise. And so you'll, you'll see this. Uh, if, if over a third of the Psalms are laments, then you're going to see this pattern in many of the Psalms. And one of the writers that's helped me, uh, I can't pronounce his name, but I'll just call him Mark. So lament rises from the firm belief in the character of God. That's key. This isn't just complaining to complain. There is a sense of recognition of who God is, that, that He is sovereign. And an understanding of the brokenness of sin, and then this heartfelt longing for the completion of God's redemptive plan. So lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust or, or praise. All right? Psalm 10. Those without God, seem to prevail and prosper. But remember, God is king. Jesus is king. And he will make all wrongs right. That is what we're going to see in Psalm 10. Follow along as I read. Um, I'll begin right there's no title to this, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, those small letters above most psalms for the choir director or whatever, uh, not here. And we'll talk about why I think that is true. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns, renounces the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. 
As for all his adversaries, he just snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, you will not require it. You've seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is on the earth will no longer cause terror. This is God's word to us. Those without God seem to prevail and prosper, but remember, (laughs) Jesus is king, God is king, and he will make all wrongs right. You can take that to the bank. You can count on that. That is truth. And and this psalm so beautifully leads us through this this, psalm. pattern of of complaints, in this case about the wicked, and then this strong confidence in our mighty king. All right? So let's let's uh, look at the first section, the complaints of the uh, about the wicked. Psalm 10 is a psalm of David. I'm going to I'm going to point out that I think that there is good reason that Psalm 10 is a psalm of David that is a sequel, a a part two to Psalm nine. Uh, the psalmist will often do this in the in the um, in the Hebrew Bible. Often uh, psalms are grouped together. We see this in Psalm nine and ten. This was one psalm. Uh, in uh, Psalm 42 and 43, it was one psalm, but we have them in two. So that, that helps us as we read this. So that means that for the choir director on Muthleban, uh, at the beginning of, of Psalm 9, a psalm of David applies to this psalm as well. And so he begins uh, with this, Why, O Lord, again, um, so uh, sometimes the, the psalms will use a chiasm. Uh, comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And so we have this pattern that, that sometimes finds itself. So in, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, it's a hymn of praise to the king. And then he goes into 13 to 20, a plea for the Lord's help. And then he comes back. 
um, at the beginning of chapter 10 with this lament about the wicked. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And then he goes back to a plea for the Lord's help and a hymn of praise to the king. So we could say this kind of A, B, C, B, A. And so you see this kind of pattern. And I highlight lament about the wicked because in the, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet is, is spelled out. The first half of the alphabet is in, in Psalm 9. And then there is this break in the alphabet, and there's like some letters missing in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 10. And then the alphabet picks up again in chapter 10, verse 12, and goes to the end of, of chapter 10. So it's almost like by, by the way it is written, we know these psalms are together, and we know that verses 1 to 11 of chapter 10 are to be highlighted. It's the largest part of Psalm 10, uh, verses 1 to 11. His complaints about the wicked. And he starts with this appeal to God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So it's like this. The world is going to hell and you don't even care. Why are you so far off? Let me tell you about the wickedness in the world. And then he rants. And he just lets it out. We see this in other psalms where Psalm 35, David says, Have you seen, O Lord? Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. In Psalm 38, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O God, be not far from me. So it's like this double whammy. The world is just going to hell in a handbasket. It's just going to pot. It's like the wickedness, evil is prevailing in the world more and more. And where are you? Where are you? Lament is the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty but live in a world with tragedy. That's why laments occupy so much of the Old Testament in prayers. That's why we need to learn the language of lament. It's kind of a lost language. The majority of this psalm is spent complaining to the Lord about the wicked, how they think, how they speak, how they act, how they're treating people. The word wicked is used five different times. And, um, and so we see that in the first part of this psalm, very strong. Let's look at this profile. First, pride. Verse 2, in pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Verse 4, the wicked in his haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. I think that verse 3 is very critical for us to look at. For the wicked boasts of his heart desire. Now listen, we can boast about a lot of different things, okay? We can boast about our accomplishments. We can boast about our education. We can boast about our athletic ability. We can boast about our musical ability. We can boast about a lot of things. But let me tell you, it's at the bottom of the barrel when we start to boast about our heart's desires that are way out of whack with God. And you look at our world. 
our heart's desires could be totally opposite of what God wants. And yet because we have those desires, we boast in them. That's, that's, that's sick. That is wicked. And then look at, um, in, the, in the New King James it says this, He blesses the greedy and he renounces the Lord. Um, and that's, uh, that's, not a, that's not a good blessing. Um, John MacArthur says, the wicked's modus operandi, operandi is the opposite of what God demands. Um, we are to bless God and, and, and care for uh, others and, and spurn, really, the greedy. Uh, he, he blesses the greedy and, um, and spurns the Lord. And so we see pride, we see greed. Um, psalm 49, you can read that on your own, but this is a psalm that talks about, it just seems that the wicked are just getting more and more wealthy. They're prospering so much. But then he remembers, oh, that when he dies, he won't take anything with him. And, and so the psalmist kind of comes to this conclusion himself that it really doesn't matter because we're all going to end up the same way. Um, and so greed doesn't matter. But at this time in this psalm, he is venting about the greediness of man. His foul mouth, uh, we see, um, we see in, in verse 3, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. And then, and then we go on a little bit further. Um, where it says in verse 6, He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. I understand that there's all kinds of like pathogens in our mouth. Uh, 300 some or whatever. We, we, we always think it's a bad thing. I, I don't like dogs to lick me or whatever, but it's probably worse if a human would lick a dog. We have so many pathogens. But here we just see three pathogens, three things that are in our mouth, and that is curses, deceit, and oppression, mischief, wickedness. It's under his... Uh, Jesus says, out of, out of that which fills the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we say things because it's in our hearts, and, and the wicked person's heart is messed up, and so therefore he, his mouth is all messed up. And so uh, I think that verse 6 is probably the, the classic. He says to himself, and we're going to see him talking to himself a lot, uh, so maybe while he's running or in his chariot or whatever, he, he's talking to himself, and he says, I'm not going to be moved. I, I won't ever be shaken. Um, I'm, I'm very happy, and throughout all generations, I'll never face adversity. I'll never have to. I will never be shaken. I'm quite happy, and I'll never face suffering or adversity. That's what he just keeps repeating to himself. I, I, I won't be shaken. It's kind of like his life motto. I won't be shaken. I'm quite happy. And I'll never face adversity. And then he goes to his doctor, and the doctor, he has this strange pain, and the doctor says, you have a malignant tumor that you will probably only last about six more months. And it's like it just, just popped his dream. He's living 
in a mythological world. <laughs> the wicked. The wicked is saying all these things to him, and yet reality is not with him. This is how proud he is. He's deceitful. And, and verses 8 to 10 um, just unpack that. I, I found it interesting in my study that verses 8 to 10, three whole verses, just talk about lurking places, hiding places, stealthily hiding place. He lurks, he catches, uh, he crouches. That kind of seems strange to me, but, but this whole idea of deceit, um, he lives uh, a hidden life, I guess. Uh, uh, he lives a double life, maybe you could say. Um, and then finally, he is just godless. Um, in, verse, in verse 4, he said, all his thoughts are, there is no God. In, in verse 6, he says to himself, I'll not be moved through all generations. I'll not be in adversity. And then in verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. And then in verse 13, he says to himself, you will not require it. So there's like, no, I will never face judgment. Um, it's interesting that he says there's, there is no God. And then a little bit later, he says, God has forgotten, or he's hidden his face. And then he says, you will not require it. And so it's like he's kind of mixed up. He doesn't even know. He doesn't even know if there's a God or not. But, but he, he doesn't think there is. But then he starts to think about it, and he says, well, maybe he's just forgotten about it. Maybe he won't hold me to account. And so this man is confused. And how many in our world is living with this confusion? They, they're living in an unreal world. They're saying all these things to them, and all it'll take is just one horrendous crisis, and their bubble is popped, and it's like, oh my goodness. Colin Smith says, wickedness is not a new phenomenon. It only takes new forms, and it dresses in new ways. When I was in high school, the, the, you know, the 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 worst partying that you could do is like go to a kegger out on some farm or something, you know what I mean? Now they have like farm parties, and it's not like because it's on a farm. It's because you got all kinds of different uh, pharmaceutical drugs that you bring or whatever. It's like, it's like wickedness just takes on, it just dresses differently. Um, same sort of deceit, same sort of pride, same sort of deception, but it just takes different forms. Back when I was in high school, there was no internet. Sorry, it's a long time ago. And, uh, and, it, and it's like there, there, the, if you wanted pornography, it was a magazine at a newsstand. And I could see them, and I'd, I'd kind of rubberneck and, and see what was over there, but I, I shouldn't have picked that up, you know what I mean? Now, it's like you can get anything you want at any time. So wickedness plus technology means incredible evil can be. All right, And so this is the world that we live in. This psalm is so relevant for today. It's like, do you ever find yourself saying, what in the world is going on? Is there anything worse that can happen in the world? This is what David is, is wrestling with before God. These complaints about wicked, about evil, about the, the world. And then he comes to verse 12. And we see this 
confidence that, that arises in, his, in the word arise. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. The, the, the wicked says there is no God. I know there is a God. David's petition begins in verse 12 with this word, these words, Arise, O Lord, where he calls God to action. And, um, and he does that through a few different uh, petitions. Petitions will often be command imperatives. And so, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Okay, the hand was a, was a, was a mark of power. Show your power. Show something. I know how powerful you are. Reveal yourself in power. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. The wicked are just taking advantage of them. They're abusing them right and left. They're hiding in secret places and taking advantage of people. Lift up your arm and your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. And then in verse um, down just a little further in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. It's like power up on them. Remove their power and influence. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. These are powerful command imperatives. And then this confession of trust that is grounded, as we will see here in, in verses um, 14 and following uh, is about the Lord seeing wickedness, hearing the cry of the afflicted, saving the needy, and one day settling all accounts with justice. Let's look at verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked. Call The ESV says, call his wickedness to account till you find none, till it's done. Till evil's finished, call them to account. You do see, you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, uh, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. O Lord, you hear this desire. And, And then he says, Um, In verse 17, you will incline your ear to justice, to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is on the earth may strike terror no more. So there's a day coming when they will no longer be able to strike terror, and he is recognizing that fact. I love the story of the the, uh, farmer who who loved to uh, make fun of Christians and... um, and he just, out of spite, would do most all of his farming on Sundays. As he was in his fields, he would be shaking his fist at people as they were going to church. Um, and then one day he decided to write a little uh, letter to the editor in the local newspaper, and he, and he said this. He said, I plowed on Sunday, planted on Sunday, cultivated on Sunday. I hauled my crops in on Sunday, but I never went to church on Sunday. Yet I harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing, and never miss a service. Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. 
end of letter. And then the next day, a letter to the editor just said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Um, And so we live in a world where all these things seem to be just wreaking havoc, just rampant wickedness. And, and, And we could think, God, why are you so far off? Why do you seem so disinterested in what's going on? And after his long complaints to God, there is this recognition that God has power. Arise, O Lord, lift up your arm. And and so there's this confession of trust in the fact that God has seen, God has heard, God can save, God will settle all accounts. And then verse 16, I think, is very, very critical where he says, and this we could maybe say is his vow of praise. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You'll strengthen their heart. You'll incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is on the earth will no longer cause terror. And so it's a recognition of God's sovereignty. Um, The Lord is king forever and ever. And back in chapter 9, remember the chiasm? He said this, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. It's interesting that Psalm 9 is like is more of a hymn of praise. The tone is a hymn of praise. And then you come to Psalm 10, and it's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember all the wicked in, that's in the world. And so he goes into a complaint, but then he comes full circle back around to this vow of praise to God and his being the king. And so, laments always start with a plea, and they end with praise. And so I encourage you to be writing your own psalm of lament um, as as we're in this series. You, You have things in the world that don't make sense. You have things that it's like, what in the world is going on? Will this ever end? Is this only going to get worse? And, and, and so write out your prayer in a journal and, and begin with an appeal to God and then move to your complaint and lament. Make it as long as you want it. Speak honestly and openly to God. And then position yourself and recognize some attribute of God and, and place your trust, confess your trust in Him. Petition Him. And then praise Him for who He is and what He has done. All right? So here's your personal application. First of all, have you surrendered your life to Jesus, the King? Where's the gospel in this? Um, Well, let me just remind you that the Lord Jesus was horribly abused, deceived, taken advantage of, falsely accused by all kinds of godless, wicked men. I mean, you can't even read. You realize that John's gospel, almost half of the entire gospel is the last week of Jesus' life. His passion. You cannot read the trials that Jesus went through without just wanting to throw your arms up and saying, that's not fair! No. It is not fair. This world is not fair. There's all kinds of injustices. 
But we must center ourselves and recognize who God is, His power, His sovereignty, His kingship. And this is what must give us peace in these evil days. Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. You've seen them. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. Jesus not only endured injustice and abuse and cruelty and deception and wickedness. But listen, Jesus triumphed over them. God, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So Jesus as king means that there is a day coming when he returns, when every wrong will be righted. There will be nothing, no loose ends out there. All wickedness will be punished. And Jesus will reign forever and ever. And those who are his family are, are, have, have come under his, um, his authority um, will, will reign with him forever and ever. All right? So... Um, I introduce you, uh, well, okay, let's go to number two, and then I'll introduce you to um, a hymn writer. As evil and wickedness increase in our world, how do you complain to God? What does your complaint look like? Is your complaint uh, centered in, in a trust in God's character and in God's work? Or is your complaint centered in man? And, and, and just the fact that that's all you can see is yourself. We can, we can bring around ourselves whoever we want. Um, and yet, it is very, very important to us to recognize the sovereignty of God in the midst of it. This is who I want to introduce to you, Robert Robertson. Um, it was an English clergyman who lived in the 18th century. Not only was he a gifted pastor and preacher, but he was also a highly gifted poet and hymn writer. However, after many years in the pastorate, his faith began to drift. He actually left the ministry, finished up uh, his life in France, indulging himself in sin. Tradition has it that one night he was riding in a carriage uh, in Paris, and there was some socialite, some rich, wealthy person sitting in the carriage with him who had recently been converted to Christ. She was interested in his opinion on some poetry that she was reading, and so she just read it to him. And, and she read the words, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never failing call for hymns or songs of loudest praise. And all of a sudden she looked up as she was reading the poetry and, and uh, this man was crying. Uh, and, and, and so she said, what did you think of it? Uh, and, and, and then he says, I wrote that, but now I've drifted away from God and I can't find my way back. And she says, but don't you see? The way back is written right here in the third line of the poem. 
Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Those streams, she said, are flowing even here in Paris tonight. And he, Robert Robinson, recommitted his life to Christ. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here there by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so Robert Robinson uh, lived this idea of, of, of a lament. His life went went awry, and, that, and, then, and then God in his mercy brought him back. Um, Mark, uh, this guy says, Many people I know fall into one of two camps when walking through suffering, anger or denial. Some people are so filled with anger at God that they live uh, in a self-made prison of despair and bitterness for the rest of their lives. Their pain gives rise to rage, and their spiritual life is never the same. Still other people seem to think that God, godliness means a new form of, of stoicism, and so they try to project an air of contentment that feels like denial. Everything's fine, they say, but you know it isn't. As, as I've dealt with people in pain, he, he's a pastor in Michigan, and he says, I've often had to coax them off the cliff of their anger or, or out of the cave of hiding their honest struggles. Biblical lament offers the alternative. Through godly complaint, we are able to express our disappointments and move toward a resolution. We complain on the basis of our belief in who God is and what He can do. If we are going to understand how to lament, we must learn how to complain the right way. I like that. If we're going to learn how to lament, we've got to learn how to complain the right way. So, I encourage you to write your own lament. Get your emotions out. Let, let them uh, vent to God uh, about what you're seeing and what you're feeling and experiencing, and then come full circle around to recognize the character of God and what, who He is and what He has done. If you have been wronged or abused, My question to you is, how could Psalm 10 be used as a prayer to guide your feelings? Did you catch that uh, Piper at the beginning says, sometimes our feelings need to be killed. Kill them. Stop them. We could say to uh, to David, to this, this writer of Psalm 10, stop looking at the wicked. Start trusting God. Stop focusing so much on the evil and recognize that God is sovereign, that He is King. Let me point out that this was written 
by David, the human author, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and preserved for us in the Scriptures. So this is from God to us. This isn't just some man venting. This is the Holy Spirit moving men of God, David, to write this for the church today. And so we must take comfort in this. There's a strange comfort in a lament. And um, so I encourage you with that. Paul Tripp says, Your life really is shaped by whom you cry to. If your cry is a complaint, you'll find yourself with other complainers because misery loves company and your heart will grow more discouraged and hardened. If you cry to people instead of God, you will ask these people to do what only God can do. They will feel overwhelmed and unable to help you and you will grow more desperate. If you silence your cries, crying only to yourself, you'll feel increasingly alone without anyone who cares and understands and you'll feel more and more helpless. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to muffle your cries. You don't have to be ashamed that you have reason to cry and you surely don't have to feel that God is too grand, too far off or too busy with more important things than to listen to your measly little cries for help. I think one of the reasons the Psalms is in the Bible is to give us courage to cry. Teach us to cry. They are there to encourage you to cry to the one who will never turn a deaf ear to your cries and who has the power and willingness to meet you in your need. Psalms of Lament. So, on the back of our bulletin, I read these words. Point number three, we believe God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Listen, if we believe that man, apart from God, is an enemy of God, hostile to God, alienated from God, dead in their trespasses and sins, if we believe this, let me ask you a question, why in the world are we surprised about sin? Why are we surprised that mankind sins and sin becomes even more wicked and evil and sinful the more time goes on? Only through Jesus Christ can someone's eyes be opened. Can they be reconciled to God? It is God's work through childlike faith and trust. In Jesus Christ. And you got to understand that as that statement says, um, and I'll get it out again before. Where did it go? Here it is. Okay, is that only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and don't miss the third word, renewed. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will occur. 
Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and there's coming a day when He returns, when He will bring every act to judgment, and He will right every wrong. Brother and sister in Christ, may I remind you that the person without God, it seems as though they prevail and they prosper. But we must remember that Jesus is King. And that as King, He will come and bring every act to judgment and will right every wrong. If you know someone who's been abused, you need to minister the Psalms to them. You need to point them to Psalms. You need to read the Psalms to them. Minister to them. If you've been abused, you can be the best person to minister to someone else. And I know many of you are being used in that way right now. And lean into the laments of the Psalms. Make them where you kind of center yourself right now. But may it always lead from a plea to praise. From a complaint to confidence. Because this is the pattern of the Spirit-inspired laments in the Scriptures. Worship team, come. And, um, and so as you see the world, seems like it's just going off a cliff of wickedness. And I'm not going to disagree with you. Don't think that the help is going to come through a politician. Don't put that on the president. Pray for the president that he would recognize that Jesus is king. That he would bow his knee to God and seek wisdom from him. Pray for those in authority who seem to be abusing people. Don't be surprised. This is the world we live in. When we think of enemies and when we think of the wicked, Jesus would say, listen, You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I, listen, I say to you, you love your enemies and you pray for those who are persecuting you. If they ask you for a coat, give them more. If they ask you to go one mile, go further. This is the King Jesus way of receiving abuse, praying for his persecutors that they would come to a place of repentance and surrender to Him as King. This is the posture that we must take as followers of Jesus. And knowing that one day Jesus will right every wrong. Let's stand and worship Him together.